Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christ Church Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. to give it basically 30 seconds and we'll get started. This is guy. This is like, you know, Cheers was, you know, filmed live before a studio audience kind of thing. <laughs> Cuz this will be for our people who are going to be here on Wednesday <laughs> then uh who are online. But um I'm so grateful that you all have come because this makes a big difference to me because it helps me adjust and think about what I want to say and I, you know, I think about each of you, and you're all a wonderful representation, you know. Uh, some of you are physicians. Uh, we have two physicians here. We have a retired clergy person here. We have some, uh, someone in finance. We have someone who works, you know, we have engineers. We have a, like, a lovely group of people, and so I'll be thinking about that. Are we ready to go, Matthew? Yeah, right. <laughs> Rock and roll. Let's begin with prayer. Yes. We'll do it live. <laughs> the Lord be with you. Let us pray. We thank you, dear God, for the gift of faith, which we do not develop on our own. But faith comes to us out of an admission of our spiritual poverty. And when it comes to us, it comes to us as a kind of richness that helps us to change. We ask that you would guide us and lead us to a deeper faith. Help us to know you as you are revealed to us through things unseen, through the suffering and challenges that we face as part of our ticket of pain. Help us to see you and to have faith when we are surrounded by chaos and immersed and don't know which way to go and lead us by this faith home to peace to love to joy and to your son jesus these things we ask in your mighty name amen so thank you all for being here. Just to say a little bit more about where we are in this is we've spent uh, last week, we basically recapped two-thirds of a book in which we talked about grief, we talked about trauma, we talked about the difference between surviving and thriving, and now we're going to talk a little bit about faith. And um, that is uh, the first practice that we're going to try to think about and reflect about as we seek to move through a kind of progression. And this progression is that um, oftentimes when we've been affected by trauma or we've been affected by um, any kind of, of deep wound that we are recovering from, we go through these grieving steps that, uh, that have been somewhat established uh, as a psychological theory, at least since the early 80s. 
And uh, we tend to fall into some default places. We tend to fall into um, a victim mindset or we tend to fall into a perpetrator mindset. We tend to fall into the person who will see themselves constantly as the victim of things that have happened to them or we tend to find ourselves um, into the position of being uh, the aggressor, the person who uh, takes the world by the horns and, and uh, defends, sometimes for good reasons, things that happen. Uh, and once we fall into those two kinds of binaries, we begin to survive things when we can go through a kind of uh, cycle in which we kind of name what's going on, accept what's going on, when we become aware of what's going on, when we confront what's going on, um, and when we begin to experiment with some new ways of being. And the author of the book that we're kind of using as a loose skeleton wants us to move from this kind of surviving cycle, which is always, um, it always kind of floats right above um, chaos and through being triggered and falling back. And you and I know this to be true if you've survived anything. You're always on the edge where you are, um, as a survivor, you can be brought right back to that moment in which you were bullied as a child or which you were neglected as a, as a child or some kind of wounded child gets reawoken in you. And it's so easy to do that. It's just part of what it means to be a survivor. Um, and Bell's thesis is that we can actually move further and become thrivers. And thrivers are people who start to uh, bring about in their lives some kind of concentrated, consolidated change. And the example that I used last week, which was a little bit self-revealing, is uh, one of the things that I developed as a child that wasn't anybody's fault. Um, I became incredibly shame-prone. Uh, by that, I was just convinced that I was a bad person. Not that I'd done a bad thing, that's guilt, but I was convinced always that I was a bad person. And, and that, was, um, that was just viewed as good parenting at one age, you know, <laughs> it was just the, uh, it, was, uh, it was seen as a kind of motivator for you to improve your, your behavior. If you were told you were a bad person, you would aspire to be a good person. So the parenting theory went, or the teaching, you know, a lot of this happened in school systems, so that went. But in fact, um, shame doesn't actually make you better. In fact, when people are suffering from shame, uh, they tend to um, have a tendency to blame others, and they also have a tendency to um, engage in behavior that is unhealthy. They tend to be uh, prone to anger, they tend to be prone to uh, addiction and, and use of substances, they tend to be um, to create relational havoc and to have issues with sexuality and with intimacy. And um, all of those things um, are not extraordinary. They're kind of ordinary when you are shame prone. And all of those things are things that I can relate to. Uh, uh, thankfully, I have been uh, someone who, because of shame, uh, I, I, I have not settled on one of those things. I didn't just become angry. I didn't just become addicted to alcohol or drugs. I didn't just become um, relationally problematic. <laughs> I just did them all uh, because why not? I was ambitious. I'm a student. I study things. Why, why settle on one? 
Um, and, and that actually, for me, made that passage more difficult. Uh, because the gift of being imprisoned by one of those things is you tend not to be able to get away for, 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 with it for a long time. And so the people who have the gift of addiction, and I really mean that, um, those people um, can't live long. If they want to live, they have to confront their addiction. And so shame for me was toxic. And to let go of that required some consolidation of simple work. It, it meant doing some mindfulness. It also meant for me um, beginning to practice things that instilled in me a sense of positive self-esteem. And my therapist uh, that I saw uh, for about a year and a half sent me this beautiful note because this is how therapists sometimes communicate, at least the ones I get. Um, it was re this research on positive well-being that happens after faithfully dealing with shame. And it's a beautiful article. I'll post it for you. It's, it is academic. There are about 175 footnotes, and that's not an exaggeration. But that was his way of saying, good work. You, you were able to get through this period. And for me, that is an instance of moving from, from survivor to thriver. And all of the things that we're going to be going through in terms of forgiveness and resilience and gratitude and, and, and passion and connection, all of those things were bound up in that passage out of chronic and toxic shame. Um, that's, that's what it means to move from being a survivor. Um, to be a survivor is to say, I have a problem with shame. You know, my, uh, and I know so many of you so well, and um, I know how much, how endemic this is in our society, and I know some of the pain that you all have felt, so I, I'm going to get emotional occasionally. Um, I, I know that you all know what it's like to survive. And um, I want to create a community where we can thrive together. And to do that, we have to talk about things like faith. So last week, I talked a little bit about mindfulness meditation, which is something I do believe in. Um, we are not going to do that today. We're going to talk a little bit about one of these reflective practices. And um, the, 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 the five that we have here are faith, connection, resilience, gratitude, and generosity. We're going to focus on faith. So that brings me to the first question. <laughs> what is faith? What is faith for you? When I was um, in high school, I heard a sermon by a wonderful preacher who I admired. And he said that faith was like climbing a mountain. And he took rock climbing. He was meaning not metaphorically. He was actually trying to translate the actual act of climbing. And he was a, a free climber, which means he had a, a, a tether, but he didn't use any kind of pinions and things like that. And he said that faith was, the practice of the Christian life was to find the handhold, to test it, and then to trust it. So you find the handhold, you test whether the rock is going to crumble 
And then you wait, you put your body weight on it. And he said, that's what faith is. Now, I say or share this with you because I don't believe that that's what faith is. <laughs> I believe that faith trusts what cannot be tested. I believe that faith trusts what cannot be tested. The reason why faith is so terrifying for most of us is we can't know that things can get better. We can't know that we can, uh, the minute we change or do something, uh, that it's going to be something that's going to bring us greater happiness. Uh, Faith is simply trusting. And part of the reason why um, churches need to be places that are safe, um, where uh, authority is uh, both recognized but, but, but exercised sensitively and responsibly is because there's a part of faith that you simply have to trust and you cannot test. And I want to suggest that faith uh, sees the unseen. Uh, faith is not tied to something that can be counted or measured or touched in the same way. And finally, I want to suggest that faith acknowledges what we know and hope to be. And by that I mean that faith is not necessarily in something new. Um, All of them, what I'm going to share with you today is something that you probably already know in your in your in your mind something that you've seen on the internet something you've read something you've observed that someone else has done faith acknowledges what we already know and my reason for putting it that way is because i am using hebrews 11 1 to 3. i made a little elision there because i just wanted to make sure that it was clear today now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Um, Take some time, totally become little evangelicals for a moment, read through this passage, in your prayer time this week and underline things for me i've been doing that this past week and i um the one that caught me because you know i don't know i've read this once before um the worlds were prepared by the word of god Uh, there's a faith that is tied up in that Everything here has been prepared by the Word of God, but also all of the things that I'm suggesting for you today. Faith trusts what cannot be tested. Uh, Certainly, if you look at the book of Hebrews, this is a community that was experiencing some significant persecution and suffering, but not maybe quite to the point of being strung up in the streets. So they are a fairly urbane, wonderful, brilliant congregation of people, is what many people who write about Hebrews say and they are just starting to get tested for their faith they're starting to experience persecution for speaking truth to power and for standing by jesus they're starting to suffer for the first time and it's hard to suffer it's it's a shock 
particularly when, you know, so many of us come to church because we want to have some version of success. And so the author of Hebrews, which may have been a woman, some have argued, speaks about faith in this way and tells them that they must have faith because God has been gracious to them in Christ Jesus. And that Jesus is not a great high priest that we cannot relate to, but he's a priest who has been among us, who has suffered from everything we have suffered from. Hmm. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, we understand that the worlds, plural, worlds, were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Now, my favorite image of faith, and I shared this in a sermon in 2020. I hope I'm not going <laughs> to upset you all, but this is my favorite story of faith. <laughs> that kind of goes with the grain of this. This is Charles Blundin. Uh, he, that was actually his stage name. Uh, he, the, he, he had blonde hair, and he was French, so they called him Blondine, the blonde. I mean, wouldn't that be fun? Like Chris, Father Chris the blonde. We should call him Father Chris Blondine from now on. I like this. Um, and he was the first tightrope walker to cross Niagara Falls in 1859. It was an incredible, uh, uh, massive undertaking. It's a true story. 1859, think about it. He was born in 1850, uh, 1824, so he's a fairly young man, but at the top of his game. And there was this uh, celebration of connection across great distance. And so there was this huge crowd in the United States and this huge crowd in Canada. And when he got off one of his trips, he actually had taken a wheelbarrow and kind of wheeled it across because he had to up the ante every time. At one point, he like cooked an omelet on a stove uh, in the middle part just because, you know, people were like, we've seen this. We know you're not going to fall to your death. He came back with a wheelbarrow early on and he... <laughs> He turned to the crowd and he said, do all of you believe that I can carry one of you across this line to America and back safely in this wheelbarrow? And the entire crowd shouted, yes. And he said, can I have a volunteer? <laughs> And he said, you have sight, but you have no faith. Now, there's many versions of the story I'm going to tell you, but I like this one. <laughs> and it's all been reported in newspapers, so you know that they're true. Back then, they had social media just like ours, just as overheated, just as much crazy was reported. Just relax about it for once, today. This old woman stepped forward and volunteered. And she got into the wheelbarrow and Blondine brought her back and forth and she got down. It was his mother. <laughs> yes. I love that story for some reason. We'll save that for, Mar for May, but really it's about faith. I mean, she knew him, but it took faith. And so one of the things I love is this image.
but I think there's more to faith than what I've done. I've kind of gone into the book of Hebrews, giving you a little background on the book. It's a great book. I think we should do a Bible study on Hebrews. I actually studied it closely in um, seminary because it used to be the book of the Bible that Anglicans had the corner on because of the way it imagined the throne of grace and all of these things. So we're going to go into that someday because it's a beautiful, beautiful book. But I want to suggest to you something more is also at work in faith because this is subterranean to the book of Hebrews, but it's real. And that is faith is always accompanied by temptation, struggle, and suffering. Richard Rohr has uh, an incredible book of his many incredible books in which he was uh, doing spiritual direction with a woman who was just bound up in a great deal of anger and irritability and it bothered her and it also bothered her community. And at one point he said, um, her pain was a ticket to her spirituality. And he universalized from that. He said, pain is often a ticket to spirituality. We don't get spirituality without actually suffering pain. We don't look for things unseen if we're not experiencing pain. Pain is the gift. Um, hard to say, easy for us to say. We're all apparently well-fed. We're all got a clothes on our back. We're not running for our lives. But it's a truism that I think is true. Faith is always accomplished by temptation, struggle, and suffering. And the image, now that I've shown you Blondine, my, my favorite image of this, and, and although I tend to always try to do art from around the world to show different visions of art from different people besides people that look vaguely like us if we went to the gym more often, um, the piece that I like is this one by Peter Paul Rubens. And this is Daniel in the lion's den. It's from Daniel chapter 6. And this is the moment. Daniel, as you might know, he has been uh, tested to give up the dietary laws, to, um, to, to not worship God by um, uh, opponents. He's involved in a cutthroat context in which everything is being watched. He can't, he's, he is, he's ambitious. He gets where he wants to go. He gets attacked and undermined and backstabbed by others. The king, Darius, loves him. And so the king does, puts out this proclamation that no one can worship. And Daniel goes ahead and worships. And so Daniel is thrown into the lion's den because the king had declared anybody who worshipped would go into the lion's den. And um, he survives the night. And of course, the way that Rubens does this, you can see on the bottom of it. I hope it's clear here. If not, you can watch the video. There are human skulls at the bottom. I guess these lions were fed a steady diet of political refuse, <laughs> people who had been in. And some of you might see this and, you know, working at a large office, you're like, I know that skull. <laughs> Whatever happened to him? Uh, he, was, he was nice until he wrote that email. And, uh, or... <laughs> <laughs> the things we say, we don't, we do, but don't say kind of thing. And uh, Daniel is looking up and his, um, he's deep in prayer. And that's at the moment when the opening has been opened. And the, the book of Daniel writes this. Then at the break of day, the king got up and hurried to the den of lions. 
when he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you faithfully serve been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel then said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they would not hurt me because I was found blameless before him. Now, there's a lot in this beautiful story, but uh, what I love about this painting is you come upon Daniel in the agony of faith. He is faced uh, by incredible testing and violence, and he has to make himself somehow vulnerable before God. And it's a kind of Christ figure, a little bit like the suffering servant is a Christ figure that we heard about today. But this is, I think, a kind of hero of the faith. And it brings that point that faith is always accompanied by temptation, struggle, and suffering. And to say a little bit more about this, um, I'm going to pull from Richard Rohr because he plays a really important role uh, in, this, um, in this section, um, which is that faith is belief in a large process of transformation. What I've said before about faith trusting and not being able to be tested, what I said about faith being the product of pain and suffering, what I said about faith being an act of acknowledgement, uh, not just knowledge, you can't just see or know that you're gonna make it across the tightrope, you have to actually walk it. Uh, all of those things are good, but faith is even larger because faith is that moment in which you begin to enter into the chaos of your life so that you can find out who God is calling you to be. Um, in the 12-step tradition, there is step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. I love that step because came to believe. It's a step about faith. It's a step that believes that this power greater than yourself, not just faith that I'm going to get through this and I'll be back on my yacht. <laughs> um, it's the power to believe that something greater than yourselves, God is preparing something deeper. And so for Richard Rohr, faith is part of a larger process of transformation, a movement from order to chaos to reorder. Now, um, friends, feel free to disagree with Richard Rohr. I do all the time. I don't really have in my life an order that existed beforehand. <laughs> I just had a life of like sheer chaos growing up. And then I had this kind of breakthroughs to order. Now, some of you had Sunday dinners and some of you had family traditions. I am super happy for you. And I hope that those things are what you remember when you want to pull some resources to be resilient. But the thing that I love is the chaos uh, because that actually speaks to some of what um, I experienced, which was fun, um, and also uh, part of the order that I have now in my life. And this is what Rohr puts about um, chaos. I'm going to actually read this for you. I'm going to make sure you all get copies of this ahead of time. If you signed up for the class, it'll go out tonight. But chaos often precedes, this is Richard Rohr, 
chaos often precedes great creativity. Darkness creates the desire for light. Faith actually precedes great leaps into new knowledge. That's the good news. Our uncertainty is the doorway into mystery, the doorway into surrender, the path to God that Jesus called faith. How strange, and actually heresy of the first order, that we turn this dark night of faith into a demand for certitude and control. I'm seeing people of great faith today, people of the big truth who love the church, but are no longer on bended knee before an idol. They don't need to worship the institution, neither do they need to throw it out and react against it. This is a great advance in human maturity. We are slowly discovering what many of us are calling the third way, neither flight, neither fight nor flight. So remember that whole binary between victim and perpetrator, neither fight nor flight, but the way of compassionate knowing. That's a powerful description, I think, of the promise of faith in chaos. And then I want to move into one more quote. Um, this is, again, a little bit later in the same chapter. Our motto is simple and clear. The best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Just go ahead and live positively in God, through God, and with God. In time, the fruits will be apparent. In the short run, you will hold the unresolved tension of the cross. In the long run, you will usher in something entirely new and healing. This was the almost intuitive spiritual genius of St. Francis. He wasted no time attacking the rich churches and pretentious clergymen or even greedy, greedy tradesmen like his dad. He just went to the side and did life differently. He is remembered forever. They are lost to history. So Francis, for a roar, he is a Franciscan, is someone who demonstrates how we have faith that goes through that movement from order to chaos to reorder. That's how Roar sees him. So I have some questions that I want you to think about. And um, hopefully some of you can come back Wednesday night when we'll have time for small group discussion. Those of you who are at home, we're so grateful that you're here. Those of you who are watching this, take some time and not just sit quietly in meditation, that's good. Um, but after you meditate for about three or four or five minutes, ask yourself these questions. What do you need to trust today that cannot be tested? What do you need to see that you've been missing? What do you know that you need to acknowledge? How is your faith being tried by temptation, struggle, and suffering? What chaos and disorder are you facing in your life? How would faith help you practice the better? These are the questions that we have to kind of wrestle with and begin to 
chart out some practices. And by that I mean you can do this anyway. You all are brilliant people. You know exactly what to do. I, I am always, um, I always learn from each of you, honestly. I'm not just blowing smoke. I always learn from each of you. So one of the things you could do is pick up a practice that gathers all of those up. And another thing you could do is just pick one of these things. If it's too big of a step, pick one of these things that you want to um, use as a way to grow. And these practices are, um, these practices are, are incredible and they affect not just your interior life, it also affects your exterior life. Um, one of the things that I had to do yesterday uh, is I had the great gift of being one of the few um, people who are white in a very large gathering of African Americans and we were all talking about justice. And I got to meet, um, his name is Ellis, he was the prosecutor who put uh, Derek Chauvin, uh, George Floyd's killer, behind bars. And I was asked to speak about the church, about what we were doing. And I was so proud to do that. But there's one thing that I, I did that goes right to these questions, which is that I didn't pretend that I didn't know what has happening in our lives through racism. I simply presented myself as being someone who wanted to be part of the solution. And that made all the difference in a conversation I had with a colleague who is African American and a professor. I didn't spend, I didn't spend any time saying, I never knew, because I knew. I think all of us know. But I had to have faith that I could somehow present myself in that vulnerable space to be part of the solution. And I believe that everything I've done to learn to thrive, to have that self-worth that's true and not to be consumed by shame because so often that's what happens when we confront something horrific in our society. We just, we immediately feel shame and we try to distance ourselves. Everything I did internally helped me negotiate that meeting yesterday and so that it became life-giving and grace-filled. Questions and comments? Please, Tom. I'm still processing uh, something from Wednesday night. I was really grateful for something you said. One of your mentors had said, if you don't go deeper as a pastor, nobody will. Yeah. And I really appreciate how you're doing that because it's helping me to go deeper. I really appreciate you saying that because I, I, how you manage disclosure as a pastor is always a... Uh, fun right it's a it's a thing to know and you know as a pastor yourself 
uh, the challenge of doing that. So thank you. I appreciate that. Could we please hear that all over again? Yes. Tom, you go ahead. Chris has got the mic. He was a little... Here you go. Sorry. Just try to be... And try to give it as much heartfeltness as possible. No, no. Uh, last Wednesday evening when we were in the Thrive Group, something you said I was very appreciative of and I'm still processing, and that is you quoted a, mem a mentor saying that if you as a pastor don't go deeper, nobody else will. And that is helping me to go deeper right now in myself, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Any other questions, comments? Amy? And maybe for the folks um, watching at home, you can put your questions in the chat box. Oh, awesome. Online, and we can address them here in real time. Awesome, thank you. This isn't a question, it's just a comment. I was listening to Krista Tippett this morning, which I usually do Sunday mornings. She had two African-American people on, and the one was interviewing the other one. The other one's name was Dream something or other, and she comes from Detroit. But anyway, there was a line about, about how hard they've had to work to survive America. And I found that like, whoa. Yes. You know, I mean, we're so much taught that, aren't we lucky that we're here and this is the best place in the world. And they're, they're, they're surviving America. There's a lot of wisdom to, to be learned from many, many places. And certainly that's, that's one, to, to learn how to thrive. Who, who else? Dawn. Could you just go over again, um, guilt versus shame? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's like, some people have heard too much of it. Um, but basically, guilt is when you've done a bad thing, and shame is when you are told that you're a bad person. And um, so the, the person who has popularized this incredibly has been Brene Brown, and she does a really good job of that. There's no question. There's been a lot of work on shame since about the 1980s. Um, a, um, a, a psychologist named Helen Bach um, began to do some significant work in it. There was also uh, people even before her, but she began to make this elemental distinction that guilt is when you've done a bad thing and shame is when you believe yourself a bad person. And interestingly enough, when we experience guilt, um, we can actually move through guilt and be fine. Um, we can grow, we can, we can make amends, we can do things that are right, we can own up to what we've done. Um, but when we feel shame, we tend to just immediately blame others. So it was the bad patterning of my parents, <laughs> right? Um, it, was, it was, you know, the devil drink, you know, or, you know, I was overserved at that bar. I couldn't believe the bartender. He kept on pushing us because he wanted tips and he saw that I had some money and that's why I got into the car drunk, right? And th these are the things that people tend to do when they're dealing with shame. You know, I was so, I was working so hard that I, I, I was, uh, I lost my temper with that staff member or I acted inappropriately. So that's what shame tends to do. Shame, actually no one ever gets better from shame. And this has been studied, there's like a very small, they've been able, because they're trying to be honest, there's a very, very, very small segment of the population who are somehow able to negotiate shame and get better. But by and large, every empirical study that's been done since 1980 shows that we just get worse. It's just, it's clear. Go ahead. I would add to that. Um, shame 
below all that is a, is a profound sense of disgustingness, badness, worthlessness. You're just a piece of, you know, that, that that's what's internalized. Yeah. Is that that feeling if you're a mistake, I don't want you, you're a disappointment, you're a failure, you know, whatever it came from, but, but that horrible sense. So then this blaming everybody else is a, a layer above that, it's a reaction to that. Because otherwise I've got to look at the fact that maybe I really am as awful, as worthless as I deep down fear that I am. Good, good, good addition. Anybody else? Eric. I experience some frustration when we, and I do it too, throw out big words and don't qualify or properly define them. Guilt isn't necessarily an emotion. A person can do horrific things and under the law, the state, law of the state or the law of God be guilty and not feel a thing. Yeah. Now, oh, it's possible. Hang on. I'm not quite done. Oh, sorry. Shame, shaming, I will concede, is not a good thing. Repeated shaming and exiling and, and you know, sending people away to their bedrooms forever. But maybe it's my Calvinist ancestors speaking, but shame can be the equivalent of pain in a limb. Oh, I'd better see the doctor. It's an indication that something is wrong. To be perpetually shamed, I would agree, is not good. But I resist a little bit the people who keep on saying that shame is always, per se, a bad thing. But again, at least that's as I define it. Sure, and I, I think that that's, that's uh, a wonderful addition. I mean, I don't think... I think that you can find many views of any term that stands for an emotion or a psychological process. Um, and you're absolutely right that guilt has got many different dimensions. And what I was speaking out is just a body of psychological research that Amy just helped summarize that's been, it's, it's about 40 years old. Um, which means maybe it's outlived its usefulness, but it's now starting to actually be something that's helping people um, grow. And, and so it's, it's a, I, you know, I find it helpful myself. I think, uh, I think that there's a lot of things that, that religion and theology and church can learn about shame that, that we tend not to um, want to learn. And, and I also say, as someone, for me, I feel like I'm in an odd position because I, I'm not a church-wounded person. My shaming came entirely through the, the wonderful, gifted, but dysfunctional family that I came from. So for me, church has always been a place of liberation, always been a place of incredible um, safety. It's always been a place of uplift. It's always been a place of identity. Um, and, and those are things I, I, you know, I, I think are, I'm incredibly grateful. But that's not the story that many people tell about religion. So that's kind of why we're moving in that direction. But I totally grant we could, we could parse shame and guilt. They're complex emotions. They're theological categories. We, can, we could spend the entire afternoon. And maybe we should do, we should go back. We did this like 
couple of years ago. I'm happy to go back. Chris. Yeah, I just would add on to that comment from Eric. Um, I've noticed in my own life of late that um, the distinction between a negative emotion that I'm feeling and one that is received, as Eric suggested, as a kind of an alarm bell to myself. Yeah. I need to, there's something broken in me. I'm feeling a lot of shame here. I need to pay attention to that. Um, the distinction I've noticed in my life is the times when I'm able to receive it that way coincides with the moments when I've realized I am not my shame. Yeah. Meaning I can feel the emotion, but I can distinguish that it's an emotion I'm feeling versus it's who I am. I no longer identify, I, just being able to make that distinction, I'm stepping away from that shame as, an, as identity and into a negative feeling that I'm feeling. Does that and, make sense? And that's, and that's like the, that's like your own self-therapy working really well because that's, that's exactly what, and Amy will speak more about this um, uh, even now, but certainly Wednesday, when you start to actually make that shift, that, that's actually a therapeutic moment right you begin to recognize you can have these feelings they're not going to overwhelm you you can begin to understand them you know that that i in and then pastorally for me um just to speak you know real um when when people have come to see me about something that's troubling them um i just because i'm drawing from this literature i tend and, and sometimes people have done things they should be ashamed of right um so someone will come to see me about I don't want to give you the scenario, because it, but it is a pretty good one. But it was uh, it was it was something they shouldn't have done, and uh, and and uh, I, I I listened and I said, well, you screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I can tell you. You screwed up. That's all. I mean, that's and uh, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. This was just this is what you did, and partly because if I allowed that shame cycle because what happens and just i'm grateful for amy's intervention because it is that you begin with this feeling that you're small and insignificant and worth nothing and then what you do is shame tends to generate these these activities that just pile it on and then you then you really have things you're upset about really feel bad so it, it can be this cycle that gets you stuck and 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 a lot of people who struggle with addiction know that well because that's shame is one of those things that continue to kind of sh to shadow but one more question about faith <laughs> who wants to talk about faith because that was the hard one go ahead chris um i'd like to know your thoughts on the sentence uh, faith without works is dead yes so in my life um, having restoration and transformation through having faith in god even when I didn't see it actively working at the time I was struggling to be relieved of addiction. After I was, I was told to go share that and go to places where people were really suffering. So the closeness to that actually, me showing the example of how that worked and me doing the work even when I didn't feel like it, I wanted to go home and enjoy whatever. Um, it's uh, been really eye-opening. So the relationship, as you were saying, staying close to those suffering strengthens my faith because it's a shared experience. That, that is so beautiful, Chris. Thank you for saying that because that, that, I, that's exactly that's such a beautiful image um, because I, faith needs to be exercised. 
You know, what I, I'll, I'll never forget, I had a, a relationship go south when I was in college, and it was, for once, it was not my fault. It was, um, uh, it was I, I really thought she was nice, she was this beautiful person, but she's like, I, I just am not religious. And I said, well, why? She says, well, I haven't been given the gift of faith. And she had been raised Catholic, no, no aspersion there, but she was raised Catholic, and I was like, well, would, we can, you can, it's, it's, it's not that hard to just, just come to church, like, see what happens, right? She's going, oh, no, I have not been given the gift of faith. And I think maybe she was talking me out of things, but the, um, you know, it was that whole thing that was, we had placed faith as this mystical thing that descended from on high, that it became something we couldn't practice. And so what, what the whole thing that we're trying to do here, and you've done such a great insight into that, is you can place yourself into a position to have faith. But, caveat emptor, buyer beware, it's not going to be any guarantee that this exercise in faith is going to work out, right? You, 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 when you take on faith, there's a bit of chaos. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that happen that all these questions allude to. Any other questions? That was great. Eric. It's not a question, just an observation. As I listened to your story about Beth, I wanted to say, don't turn it into something mystical before you even start. Because otherwise, what your friend said was the equivalent of saying, I don't have the gift of getting to know people. Yes. Well, everyone can do that. Yes. Try being around the person. Try listening. Yes. Try watching the person. I love that, Eric. Oh, and Manish is going to jump in too. And I'll say something at the end. I just, um, I'm, I'm struck. Um, and I think, I think something that I'm recognizing about the book that's pushing, that I'm going to challenge, I think, which is no surprise. Um, you know, uh, and, and I'm also thinking about the faith without works is dead. So all of that is to say that um, I actually believe that our thriving can never be done by us mm. alone. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so the, the, the experience of faith, this, um, this wanting to move from survive to thrive, um, there's, there is that higher power that is at work in ways we cannot say, see. There was a mountain um, faith analogy that I learned in seminary too, and I thought, I thought it was the one that you were gonna use, you know, not the, the hanging on and trusting it. The one that I heard was by Ken Leach, that's why I thought you were gonna use it. And it's that um, you're, you're climbing that same mountain, right? <laughs> and you don't have a tether. What we can't see is the hand of God behind you in pushing you up. That's and, true. and that, to me, is the essence of faith. That's so beautiful. Um, we should just cancel the course right now, folks. We're just going to... Can't add anything. No, I... But, but, the, but it's uh, also a good lead-in to next week. Yes. Uh, community and connection. Yeah, I mean, I, well, it, exactly. But I, what I want to try to say is, yes, um, God works through us in all things. Uh, and theologians have spent all of their lives trying to figure out what is God's part and what is our part. 
right? So what is it that I do, and what is it that God's doing? And um, my belief is that those two things are often so entwined and so complex that we never will know. And, and, and that's why actually it is incumbent upon us to actually try. Uh, God doesn't want simply um, automatons. God doesn't want simply people who have nothing to claim. God, God wants us to be part of God's own self with, in a way that's appropriate to us as creatures. God is filling us with the Holy Spirit in baptism. So at that moment, whenever we do anything, it is that God is holding us up, but the shift of practices from mysticism Although, obviously, Richard Rohr is a mystic, if he's anything, but that shift of practices is actually giving us the, a different way of thinking about how we can live our daily lives. We can make room for faith. We can, just as like we practice yoga, or just as much as we go to the gym, we can, just as much as we go to work, we can actually create space for faith. And yes, that connection is real, and this book is done by a sociologist who is a gifted amateur. Um, and it's okay. He's really gifted. Um, it's really quite good. Um, and we'll have all sorts of things to say and add to change. And I'm really grateful for that. And I also want to make sure that you know that we are going to go through this. It's, I'm not wed to this. I'm not... I'm here to learn with you. So without... With that in mind, Father Chris, you have the mic. Why don't you close us in prayer? The Lord be with you. And also with you. Loving God, we give thanks for the gift of faith, for the journey of faith, for the spiritual exercise and practice of faith. Be with us as we continue our journey in life. Lift us up, strengthen our faith, help us to find it when we think it is wanting, help us to share it with those in need. We ask for all these things in your blessed Son's name. Amen. Thank you all for being here at home. See you all Wednesday. We want to say something? No. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christchurch Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at ChristchurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christchurch Cranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.